I'm going to start off with an obscure story, but it's one of my favorite obscure stories, and I have many of them. This is George Spencer Millet. You see our friend George, who lived back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. At one point was a choir boy, you know, so you can see that he looks, you know, just very stoic. We don't have many other pictures of George because this was back when photography was more expensive. But George, as he became a teenager, got a job in New York City at the Metropolitan Life Building, like the Met Life uh, building there in New York. If you've ever seen it, it's a beautiful structure. And unfortunately though, George worked in like this secretarial pool place. So at that point, the 15-year-old was working in the midst of tons of ladies. And it just happened to be that it was really tons of single ladies. So because he was like the fresh meat on the block, again, this is far before a Me Too movement ever existed, but George was the subject of their affection to the point that when his birthday was coming up, they started to go to him saying, on your birthday, we're just going to give you lots of kisses. And George, being a 15-year-old boy, was not too thrilled about that. But, you know, he took, you know, took it all in stride. And, you know, as his birthday approached, it got more and more. To the point on his birthday, the ladies in the office said, it's your birthday, you're getting the kisses. So they begin to chase George, who begins to run around the office. Now this is in the MetLife building, they dealt in the secretarial pool, with, they would make like back then ink copies of things, and when you worked with ink back then, you had to, you know, you rolled the ink, you, have you ever seen that process, like they poured the ink out and they used rollers, well to get the ink off the roller you would have this thing called an eraser, but the eraser was really like a knife. So George would take care of that, and as the chasing began, he just happened to have his little eraser knife in his pocket. So as the women caught him and he fell to the ground, he impaled himself on his ink knife and died in the office. I think we're beyond, you know, this is over 100 years ago, so I think we can have a little bit of a laugh about it and not be diabolical. But this is the reason that we know about George Spencer Millet is that his family decided to make sure that they knew that the death of their 15-year-old son was premature and therefore on his tombstone wrote this. And I don't know if you can read the small print right in there, but George Spencer Millet lost life by stab and falling on ink eraser, evading six young women trying to give him birthday kisses in office Metropolitan Life Building. That's what his tombstone says to this day, and you can find it outside of New York. This is, this is pretty good stuff, right? Like if you're going to go, go big, go home. This is the type of transparency that some of us appreciate in this world, right? We kind of love full transparency, honest talk. Right? So many times we let the words get in the way. Are, are any of you people those that you're like, look, I would just rather you give it to me straight. Like, tell me exactly how things are. Some of you, audience participation, some of you are like, yes, let's tell me how it is. Some of you are just like, I'm not that way, and you're probably smarter than those previous people because we really don't want honest talk, right? I want talk that's quasi-honest, that pushes me towards better things, but I don't want somebody to come up to me and say, you know what, Steve, that was a pretty crappy sermon today. Like, what you said was irrelevant, and it added absolutely nothing to my life. We would have been much better off watching a Brian Tome video than listening to you speak today. 
day, right? Like, that would be the transparency that I would not appreciate. However, we see that there is a value in honest talk, and it's how we get there. And we're going to get there this morning as we continue in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, our series we're calling Under the Sun. So we'll be in the Bible today. I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And that's in, uh, in your blue Bible. It's page 474. 474 in your blue Bible. And um, I've loved, this is my first time being able to preach in this series, but I was just talking this morning as I preached through Ecclesiastes about four or five years ago. And it's a great book, but it is a book that you don't want people just to enter into willy-nilly, right? Do people still say willy-nilly? I just did. It's this idea that this book is basically biblical Nietzsche. It is an examination on life ripped bare for all of us to see from this wealthy person, whether or not it was Solomon or, you know, it's the teacher we don't know, but it was somebody who basically drank your milkshake up with a very long straw and lived to tell about it and says, you know what, at the end of this, I've found that there's a lot of meaninglessness right there. So far, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher says, wisdom is meaningless, pleasure is meaningless, work is meaningless, amen. Injustice is meaningless. Isolation is meaningless. And now we're going to get to this point where he's talking about words and talk. And we'll see the way that he explores it. Can I get a little geek on you too? Because I don't get the chance to do this as much anymore. But what we see in verses 1 through 7, where we're going in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, is this thing called a chiasm. So later when you look at this, verse 1 and verse 7 are the bold statements that cover the main ideas that will be covered. And then in the middle of it, what we're going to see is a series of do not statements. So this is in, in ancient biblical leader, uh, an ancient biblical reading. It's great poetry, great word artistry. So there's so much at work in here that we're only scratching the surface of. It does give us the opportunity to see some great things. So let's start this off at the very beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1. The teacher writes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. So as we're introduced to this concept right here, we see this idea that there's a power at work and that power is centered in who God is. And we take for granted, because we feel today that we have access to God, how truly powerful he is. There's a potency here. A few years ago, Kaylin was doing a report for school on lithium. And, um, and I think it went the wrong way right there. There we go. And I was not great in the sciences. I preferred like language and history. So she's doing this report on lithium and I'm starting to read about it and I'm like, holy crap, this is some amazing stuff right there. Because as much as lithium is something that's powered, you know, we know it best through batteries, there's such a high potency toward it is that lithium, when treated improperly, can blow things up amazingly well. And that is because while it has the power to help, it also has the power that can be used against us, right? And I'm trying to frame this within the conversation because as much as the teacher in Ecclesiastes is going through the text trying to talk about who God is, he wants us to understand that God is indeed potent. 
And even though God calls us into relationship with him, we must not lose that level of reverence and respect to understand that the power of God is so great it must be dealt with carefully. In the same way as we would deal with, you know, a, a highly volatile material, similarly we need to understand that that is who God is. So here in verse 1 we're told we need to contemplate this as we're specifically going into the house of worship. And this is what's interesting is we come into the house of worship today, we don't usually have this. You know, we, sanctuaries like this are novel because they were created for us to bring a certain reverence to the table. Dylan and I were here, some of you were here yesterday, we had some, uh, Max and Rachel from church got married in here, and it was so interesting because it's the same seat, but whereas we today are kind of dressed, you know, nice and comfortable and cool, it was a bunch of people in dresses and suits. It was just this, it was this highfalutin approach to it, and the reason why is that we associate like these major occasions to something that I dress up for, and this building lends itself to that. But the way that we usually approach God today is one more of, you know, like, okay, it's my convenience. When I walk into worship, I'm grabbing a cup of coffee. I'm chatting with some people. I'm surfing on my phone while well, I should be reading the scripture, pagan, right? You're, there's these things that we bring into worship that we don't really appreciate the volatility of God. And what we are told is as we go into worship, bring the right posture. Be ready to listen and receive what the Lord is trying to do right here. I think the, 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 the lesson that I see within this personally, especially as it's like, look, don't bring your own stuff to the table. Just come in and listen because when you bring your own baggage in, you are offering the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. I'll tell you on a personal level, I've had to deal with this in my transition from being ordained minister Steve to more elder Steve. Because I like this right here, being in front of people, being able to speak wisdom and spiritual truths, because then I get to say exactly what I think needs to be said, right? Sitting from your perspective, it's completely different. Because you're like, I must accept whatever this man says, until you're like, that's a bunch of crap, so I'll just chuck that out the window, right? And I'll let you know is the reason I can appreciate that value is as I've had to listen to Chris and to Seth and to Kelly. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, that was a good, except for that part, which sucked. Right? Sorry. Honest words. I told you I'm bringing it today. But here's the deal. You do that to me all the time anyways. You're like, that was a good point, Steve, but not that one. I won't bring out in the play. And I would tell you is that that posture is detrimental. What God has worked in me personally and the enjoyment that I found, because some of you are like, you know, I don't know how you're feeling about seeing different speakers up week to week to week. There's a blessing in that, especially for us who are speaking the word, because we are forced then at times to stop and to listen. Ministers, people who preach, don't usually listen as well as they should. I'm that dude. But in the same attitude that I need to bring, we all need to collectively bring. So I will challenge you this, as you continue to go and worship, before just dissecting the words to minutia and saying, okay, I like this, but I don't buy this, I'm just going to take what I like in a smorgasbord style, just stop and listen. Because when we don't listen, the scriptures say we are bringing the sacrifice of fools before God. For me to go to God and say, God, this is what exactly what you're trying to do is arrogance. And so many times we bring that to the table. So it doesn't mean that we don't use our minds. It don't mean, doesn't mean that we check out altogether, but we need to bring in the right posture. The posture that I see that we ought to bring into this, which is biblical too, is this concept of rending, not ritual. And that's what we want to bring to our attention.
Okay, the biblical concept of rending is this idea from the ancients when you had this point of spiritual conviction that God was speaking to you, you would tear your clothes, okay? So I know this seems foreign to us because like if somebody is tearing their clothes today, you're either watching wrestling or you're like somebody has like a mental issue with which they're struggling. But in the ancient days, especially when it was, you know, you would have one, maybe two garments at top that you would wear in perpetuity. To tear your clothes was basically an outpouring of, you know what, I've got nothing left because God has convicted me so much. But too often what we bring is ritual to worship. We think we're going through cycles. So it's not a literal rending, but a spiritual rending. As we read in Joel chapter 2, the verses that we read to start the service with. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is the beautiful thing about this, okay? And we're going to grapple with this in the rest of the text. But it's this idea that yes, our God is powerful and volatile. But even despite how massive and great he is, he bids us to be near to him. He cares about you individually. The God who made all things in creation cares and knows about you. And that is why we must continually come back and rend our hearts before the Lord. Next verses here, verses 2 and 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We read, do not be quick with your mouth and do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. So what we have here is a piece of advice that is both pragmatic and spiritual. Because this is something that many of us suffer from. My mother, in a horrible metaphor, would always describe it as, Steve, you have diarrhea of the mouth. And I was like, Mom, that is just, you know, for a quaint woman, it was just such a horrible, horrible illustration. But it has stuck with me because she recognized the fact that as middle child Steve, I was always gabbing it up, trying to get my own attention. And in doing so, I would just talk crap consistently, right? Because sometimes, and you know those people, so if you're one of those, we can start the support group after the sermon. But if you know those people, understand that there are people who believe that through the speaking of many words, they are able to somehow convince even God to side with them, right? It's like the name it, claim it. You talk about it, and, and you know, I'm going to just talk this up, and the more that I do it, it's going to happen. But what the text says is don't do that. Shut your yap every once in a while. Listen, and maybe you'll hear what God is trying to do. Specifically in this text, the writer is talking about this concept of vows. Now, it's incredibly foreign to us because spiritually we don't do it with this formality, but in ancient times... You know, a thousand years before Jesus was born, even up to the time Jesus was born, he talked about this. People would go to the temple of God and they would say, Lord, I need this to happen in my life. So I'm going to make a vow before you, Lord, that if you let this happen, then I will respond by doing this. So basically, it was this exchange made before God. 
It existed and it was within the parameters of what God allowed. But I'm telling you is that what we see in the scriptures is a redemptive theology. I think God allowed this first because he knew that the people were going to try it and utterly fail about it. And by the time Jesus gets there, he's like, listen, let's stop with the vow nonsense. Let's complete what God is really looking at for here. What he's looking for again is that rending of the heart about you becoming who you need to be so that your words are few. And when you say something, it actually matters. But what we have here is this big abuse of vow making. In Leviticus chapter 5, <clears throat> we read in, in, in the law of Moses, it says that if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath, which would be in vow, to do anything, whether good or evil, <laughs> I love that, whether good or evil, like, you know, like vow, God, I vow to do something like really bad, but I'm glad that the law covers the, the entire spread right here. <clears throat> or when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. So if you do not keep your vow, God says, I will hold you accountable for it. So again, <clears throat> this seems weird. Like none of you came to church today probably saying, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to make a vow before the Lord today. Like, you know, I'm going to come to the front and tell God, you know, God, I need you to help me win the lottery. And when you do, I will cut off my right arm. It doesn't seem... Something that we would do today. However, friends, it's something that we were constantly in the habit of doing. Because we are always in this relationship of God where we're trying to get something from Him. We're trying to leverage our relationship with God to get something we want. And again, that seems, you're like, no, Steve, that's ridiculous. That's not how I view it. Friends, we do this all the time in our human relationships. True? And as much as we don't want to admit it, we will do things... Or insinuate things to other people in hopes that they will help us out, right? Have you ever been the person who's like, you know, you're in a group of friends, you're like, man, my house needs painted. Just, you know, it's just really not doing well. Like, if you see my house, it needs, it needs painted. And you're just, you know, casting that line into the water. Poop. And you're, you're waiting for somebody to bite. To the extent that your guilt-ridden friend says, I will help you paint my house. And then you reel that sucker in. Boom. Got what I needed. It's how we use words sometimes to leverage in our relationships. But friends, I think this is helpful for us on a personal level, but also on a pragmatic level. Okay? Honest words. Speaking truth. When you try to use words to bargain with God, it doesn't work out too well. Actually... Can I read the next verse? Because I think it speaks to this as well. Um, or the next verses. Ecclesiastes 4 through 6. Ecclesi excuse me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verses 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than you for to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you and say and destroy the work of your hands? Okay, so keeping within this thought, it's this idea that, you know, the, again, it's something that you might not have familiarity with me with. Because we're like, I don't make vows today. But we do bargain with God. You know the Kubler-Roth um, pantheon, the stages of grief, you know, when something happens in your life, you know, you respond, you know, basically through a process. First it's denial, like, no, that's not really happening. Then your anger, because, you know, you're, you're, you're frustrated that something's going on. <clears throat> then there's that stage of bargaining, right? <clears throat> 
And I would say that this is a stage that many people come through with their words and their relationship with God. When we're looking to God to help us out and he doesn't help us in the way in which we see fit at the time, we become anger, angry with, you know, we deny that it's actually happening, we become angry with him. Then we're at the stage where we start to bargain with God. God, if you just do this, I'll get it done. <clears throat> this whole conversation of vows and oaths come under this. It's the idea that we are trying to use our words to manipulate God. And it's so short-sighted, friends. It's so short-sighted because we try to bargain with a God that knows our inmost thoughts. Again, as a person of faith, that's the absolute scariest thing to me that I ever have in my life. You know? You, have you ever been like, man, I'm glad nobody knows that I'm thinking this, but God does. He knows our inmost thoughts. So as we use words to try to express to God how we're feeling, we need to make sure that they're to the point and they're honest because He knows what we're thinking even before we think it. Verse 7. This is the end thought of this chiastic structure in verses, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. The author writes, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. So of all these things that have been meaningless that we've talked about at this point, now the author is getting to this point, by the way, these words that you use for vows, these words that you try to use to manipulate other people, all these words that we use are meaningless. And you saw this thread being pulled through here too. Dreams. And dreams are meaningless too. Maybe for some of us that's more disappointing than words, right? Because as the author is saying, is like dreams accompany this. Why do dreams accompany this? Because when we make a vow, usually we're making a vow because we want God to deliver our dreams. So it's not that dreams and aspirations are bad, but they can become meaningless when we see them as an escape from where we are right now. I, just, I will talk about that more just here in a second, but can I focus on that last phrase at the end of verse 7 where it says, fear God? That's some Old Testament stuff right there, right? It's difficult in our relationship because some of us bring baggage to that. When we're told to fear God, we think, okay, I'm having to worry about God who is willing to press the smite Steve button at any point, right? Like, Steve, just try me. I shall smite thee. And we don't like that relationship. I want a God with open arms ring to embrace me, not one with a clenched fist wanting to enact justice on me. But understand in the Old Testament, when it talks about fearing God, it's not for us to try to stay in this unhealthy relationship with Him. In fact, it's that, 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 um, that lithium relationship, as you understand, is that God exists and God is good, but at the same time, He is holy and He is be, to be respected as such. That we need to fear God in a healthy way. If it helps you, when you see fear God in the Old Testament, view that within the realms of respect. And if I really respect somebody, I'm not going to try to manipulate them. I'm going to treat them lovingly. And similarly, that's the way it has to be expressed in our relationship with God. Our fear of Him is supposed to be the healthiest of respect. So do that. But then you come back to this idea about dreams. Like, why do you have to go and dump on dreams, man? Like, dreams are the best. 
And by the way, I'm not talking about like you go to sleep and last night I like dreamt I was at work and it was the worst, right? I'm talking about like dreams and aspirations and things that you're hoping or having. We all have dreams, right? You know, back, uh, it was like 10 years ago, I think Oprah started it. People would make like dream boards. And if you participate in this, this is a no judgment zone. But you know, it was like, hey, put your dreams on a bulletin board and see what that is so that you can keep that visually and aspire to them, right? Like, did anybody remember this? Like seriously, Google this stuff, it existed. Because sometimes we put ourselves, uh, just put our existence so squarely on the existence of dreams that we don't really take the time to lead. And to best illustrate this, believe it or not, I am going to J.K. Rowling and I am going to Harry Potter, which I rarely, if ever, do. But hey, I've seen all of the movies, so I'm an expert. But I just saw a glimpse of this in the movie The Sorcerer's Stone, and I was fascinated. So those geeks, oh, did I not have a picture? I left the picture. There it is. I'm out of order. The Mirror of Erised. Some of you geeks know, I mean, some of you literary fans know what we're talking about right here. See what I did right there? That was, that was a jerk move. The Mirror of Erised, which, by the way, Erised backwards spells desire. Huh? That's some literary creativity from the JK. Okay, Mirror of Erised. As you know, you know, <laughs> some of you are like, I have no clue and I'm with you. But through research, I've been able to tell that the Mirror of Erised is this thing that as you glimpse into it, you see the, what you want, your desires, right? And we know that Harry Potter's parents were tragically killed very young in life. And as a result, when he looked in the mirror, what did he see? He saw his parents, to the extent that he would sneak down and look in the mirror until Dumbledore found out. Dumbledore, by the way, is like the teacher of Harry. I'm like, I need to keep everybody with us here. Dumbledore says, Harry, you know, it's not the best thing. And this is from the book, or so I'm told. This is what Dumbledore says to Harry about looking in the mirror of Erised. He says this, the mirror shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. Parenthetically, our dreams, right? It's a dream mirror. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. And I got to give it up to the JK right here because in this illustration she was able to capture an aspect of humanity that we don't usually come to grips with. This idea that we use our words to build up these dreams and these hopes of things that could be, but what we sometimes do is we put our faith in the dreams themselves and do not acknowledge the God who exists to truly fulfill our dreams. Now stick with me. Where this is manipulated spiritually is we try to use our words to manipulate God to make him think that our dreams are really his dreams for me, right? So you take a dream of yours and you develop into this thing. It's like, God, you know, I really think that you're calling me to move to Hawaii and to get paid just crazy amounts of money so I can use that for the kingdom, which is this prayer that I have. 
but I try to link my words to this dream so that I'm trying to use God to achieve it. But the problem is, friends, is our faith is actually in the dreams and not in the God who delivers them to us. And God's dreams for you are not built on empty, hollow words, but on honest talk. And that is the difficult part about living life. Sometimes God's dreams for you are things that you have never been able to articulate. And yet God is on the process of delivering those to you. What you need to do is align yourself in the fear of God to recognize that. And friends, I'll tell you, when you come to grips with your personal calling and then see what he is going to do, that is a greater fulfillment of dreams than anything that we can develop through our desires. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Friends, it's this idea that as we fear God, we can accept his honesty. And maybe in your life right now, God is speaking to you and you do not want to listen to it. The author says it's the sacrifice of fools, right? When I come into worship and I'm giving God what I think is what he wants, when the reality of what God wants me to do is to listen, to live in his love by fearing him, and to seeing what dreams he brings my way. Words are meaningless. Dreams are meaningless. But where we continue to come to this is that in God, we find meaning. We find hope. We find the most honest vulnerability that we will ever be able to pursue in this life of ours. And that materializes in Jesus. That's why we came here to worship today. So I'm hoping that during all this stuff that we've looked at through the scripture, during this week as you go out, that you start to listen to what God is saying to you, putting our hope not in dreams, but in Him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to read through the, this book. Man, this is, this is tough reading, God, because there's a vulnerability here that many of us don't want to grapple with. So I thank you that thousands of years ago, you led the teacher to write these things down so we have to grapple with them. Father, we are flawed. We're manipulative. We put hope in our dreams. And in all these things, Father, we just sometimes present you hollow words that you know are garbage, but you still show your love for us. So as we go out this week and you continue to teach us, help us to see power and the vulnerability that you have displayed before us. Help us to trust your words, to use our ears more than our mouths, so that the sacrifices we bring to you this week are honest and refreshing praises to you. We give you praise in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.